Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 13, War of the Currents, Part 1, Opening Salvo, 1886 to 1888. When we last left Tesla, he had decamped from Pittsburgh in disgust at not being listened to by the various Westinghouse engineers whom he was working with, trying to develop and integrate his AC motor to the existing Westinghouse systems. We'll have more to say about the outcomes of these efforts in a future episode. But for right now, it's enough to say that they had gone badly, and Tesla left to lick his wounds. In September 1889, he went to Paris to attend the International Exposition, and, from there, in the company of his uncle, Petar Mandish, departed for Croatia. Petar had once been a monk in a monastery near Ogulin, and there the exhausted inventor went to recover his health. So, we're going to leave Tesla there recuperating for a while, and take a step backward in time, about one year earlier, to the spring of 1888, around the time that Tesla was setting off for Pittsburgh in the first place. Because while Tesla was away in the Steel City, Edison was busy laying the groundwork for what would become an epic format war, one of the earliest such technological contests, the battle between direct current and alternating current, and which would become the dominant format for business, industrial, and residential use. The War of the Currents had begun. The War of the Currents was a war waged in the media and in the marketplace. And, as we start discussing the War of the Currents, it's reasonable to wonder how long this might take to cover. After all, we can't leave Tesla stranded at that monastery forever. But, like any war, it's hard to say exactly when it will come to a close. Three episodes? Certainly. Five episodes? Probably. Seven? Ten? Who knows? Because the War of the Currents, depending on how you date it, ranges from the late 1880s to either 1892, when Westinghouse underbid Edison's General Electric to win the contract to illuminate the Chicago World's Fair, or 1893, when the Tesla-Westinghouse system won the bid to harness Niagara Falls, or 1896, when a patent-sharing arrangement, brokered by financier J.P. Morgan, was reached between the last two combatants of the original 15 in the War of the Currents, General Electric and the Westinghouse Electric Company. This deal ended a number of costly patent lawsuits and meant that at last there was a common AC standard. And, for our purposes, this timeline is further complicated by the fact that while Edison and Westinghouse fought out their format war, Tesla was only directly involved occasionally, already having left full-time consulting work with the Westinghouse company. He would come in and out, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, for instance, or the drive to harness Niagara Falls for hydroelectric power. So, while we'll be getting Tesla out of that monastery and back into his laboratory sooner rather than later, and while we'll continue to focus on him specifically, for right now, I'd like to get the War of the Currents part of this story caught up to late 1889, where Tesla is back in that monastery, which should probably take a couple of episodes. Once we do that, and pick up with Tesla again, we will jump back and forth occasionally to keep an eye on developments in the War of the Currents that Tesla wasn't directly involved with. 
which means that while I'll be labeling the various War of the Current episodes as such, they won't necessarily follow one after another after another. Some will deal with Tesla directly, others won't. And in between, there will probably be some episodes about what Tesla was up to at the same time. Have I sufficiently muddied the waters? Yeah, thought so. Well, just cross your fingers and hope we get through it okay. The natural condition is one of insurmountable obstacles on the road to imminent disaster. So what do we do? Nothing. Strangely enough, it all turns out well. How? I don't know. It's a mystery. Like so many wars before, all I can say is that I'm sure it will all be over by Christmas. That always works out, right? So, where did the war start? Edison hated Westinghouse, to begin with. Well, maybe that's overstating it. It wasn't that Edison hated Westinghouse on a personal level, exactly. It was that he hated what Westinghouse represented. The intrusion of money men into science. Electrical empires built by suits. Men who knew nothing about science or technology, and who cared only for profit. But I think this is unfair in Westinghouse's case. Remember, Westinghouse made his fortune first as an inventor of air brakes and railway signals before he grew a business empire. But I digress. As early as 1886, Edison dismissed Westinghouse as a competitor, claiming, quote, none of his plans worries me in the least, conceding that the only thing that disturbs me is that Westinghouse is a great man for flooding the country with agents and travelers. He is ubiquitous and will form numerous companies before we know anything about it. Which is pretty rich coming from Edison, who employed the exact same tactic himself when trying to move people away from gaslight to DC electric light only a few years earlier. But Westinghouse was not so easily written off as a competitor. After just a year in the electrical business, he had built or had under contract nearly 70 AC central stations and had rapidly become Edison's biggest competitor. The Thompson-Houston Company, which we've mentioned before, was the other major competitor, but they were now installing AC stations using Westinghouse transformers. Thompson-Houston had 22 AC stations already up and running or under contract. By the end of 1887, with an eight-year head start, Edison had only built or had under contract 121 DC central stations in total. Edison was feeling the competition nipping at his heels. But, like some character from classical myth, Edison's great flaw, the one that so many in his company shared, was hubris. The Edison Electric Light Company annual report for 1887 claimed that AC competition was, quote, from a commercial standpoint, having no merit in itself and, being of high pressure, notoriously destructive of both life and property. They mocked the difficulties experienced by the Westinghouse Company. Constant breakdowns, transformers ruined by lightning, no AC motors for those who wanted to use their electricity for more than just lighting. The report quoted one manager as saying he was thoroughly convinced that the Edison system is unassailable. They cannot compete with us or do us any permanent harm, and a steady conservative policy will win the battle. But privately, Edison was being hectored by his sales force for the limitations of the DC system. Remember that the limited range of DC transmission 
meant that if a town bought a DC plant, it might reach only half the people who wanted electric lights. Those who lived more than half a mile away had to contemplate buying individual isolated plants, or else a whole other central station was needed. As we talked about in a previous episode, this meant that the Edison business model was limited especially to cities and larger towns with densely populated downtowns that could take best advantage of a central DC station. But it essentially shut out small towns and rural areas where populations were more spread out. What kind of a pitch could Edison salesmen make to towns who needed electricity for homes and factories more than half a mile away from the DC central station? Just buy another one! Probably wouldn't go over very well. In contrast, one AC station could generate power at some distance from the end consumer and transmit that power across distance without the need for multiple stations. This meant that AC could serve those more far-flung populations and grow both where Edison already had a presence as well as all that greenfield business where DC simply couldn't compete. At the same time, it wasn't like Edison didn't have options when it came to AC power. He'd been convinced to purchase the North American rights to a European AC system developed by Hungarian inventors Charles Zipernowski, Otto Titus Blathe, and Max Derry, the ZBD system we've talked about before. But even though he had the rights, Edison stubbornly refused to roll out this AC system. Historians W. Bernard Carlson and A.J. Millard argued that Edison genuinely, quote, feared that poorly designed and installed AC systems would impede the broad adoption of electric power, which he may well have done. And there's also the fact that every aspect of the Edison DC system had been created from scratch by Edison or his colleagues. It's easy to imagine his reluctance to incorporate somebody else's invention into his system, especially if he legitimately believed, or could at least convince himself, that their technology was fundamentally dangerous. Adding insult to injury, the price of copper, vital to the electrical industry, given the metal's malleability and conductivity, spiked in late 1887 as a European firm cornered the market. Copper shot up from 10 cents a pound to 16 cents a pound, making components for Edison's DC system very expensive. It wasn't lost on Edison that the Westinghouse AC central plants used just one-third as much copper as his DC systems did. At this point, Edison was concerned enough about his new competitor to go on the offensive. If he couldn't outcompete the upstart technology, he would have to discredit it. Just as certain as death, Edison said, Westinghouse will kill a customer within six months after he puts in a system of any size. He's got a new thing and it will require a great deal of experimenting to get it working practically. It will never be free from danger. In February of 1888, using the Edison Electric Light Company as his mouthpiece, Edison unleashed his first public tirade against AC power. One source calls it America's longest and most splenetic howl of corporate outrage. The 84-page Edison screed, jacketed in blood-red card, was emblazoned with a title A warning from the Edison Electric Light Company. All caps, naturally. I'll put a picture up on the show's website at www.teslapodcast.com. The pamphlet was ostensibly 
a warning to would-be patent infringers of Edison's light bulb, promising swift legal action. But in actuality, much of the second half excoriated Westinghouse. The whole AC system was, quote, the most uneconomical yet offered to the public, insisted the Edison pamphlet. Once you factored in the greater efficiency of DC generators, the reliable track record of the more tested DC systems, the lack of a meter to measure AC use, and the absence of any AC motor. Note that shortly after the pamphlet published, both the AC watt meter and the AC motor problems would be solved. In this town, your luck can change just that quickly. Those who preferred AC were dismissed as cheap johns and the apostles of parsimony. But more than simple economic concerns, Edison wasn't beyond a little good old-fashioned fear-mongering to sow doubt in the consumer's mind. Edison suggested that AC people were criminally indifferent to safety just to save a buck and get ahead. The use of AC meant greatly enhanced risks to life and property, the pamphlet warned, and the cost of such dangers would have to be borne by those who purchased a Westinghouse AC power plant. It is a matter of fact that any system employing high pressure, i.e. 500 to 2,000 volts, jeopardizes life, read the pamphlet. The Edison people warned that if a transformer failed to step down the current, the whole building would be a death chamber, supercharged with high-voltage electricity. Then, the pamphlet recounted a number of gruesome and graphic newspaper accounts of accidental deaths at the hands of alternating current. An electrical lineman hanging from a Westinghouse wire that dealt him a fatal shock. A theater manager electrocuted to death live on stage in front of a matinee crowd when he contacted a poorly insulated AC wire. No such horrors occurred with DC systems, the pamphlet assured consumers. With Edison's low-tension system, quote, there has never been a single instance of loss of life from the current employed. There is no danger to life, health, or person in the current generated by any of the Edison dynamos. The wires at any part of the system, and even the poles of the generator itself, may be grasped by the naked hand without the slightest effect. The brochure boasted that the AC system, quote, is not destined to assume any permanent position. It would be legislated out of existence in a very brief period, even if it did not previously die a natural death. It then concluded with a call to action for, quote, all electricians who believe in the future of electricity, that they ought to band together in a war of extermination against cheapness in applied electricity, wherever they see that it involves inefficiency and danger. It's interesting that Edison mentions AC being legislated out of existence, as one of his first actions against alternating currents was to lobby the New York state government to pass a law limiting electrical currents to 800 volts, which would effectively kill AC power, as it would negate its ability to be transmitted at high voltage across long distances. This legislation died a quick death, however, when Westinghouse threatened to sue the Edison firm and members of the state assembly for conspiracy under the laws of the state of New York. And then, suddenly, within a few months of the publication of Edison's warning pamphlet, in early 1888, Tesla sold an AC motor patent to Westinghouse, filling a major gap in the Westinghouse system and helping ensure that AC would be useful for more than just lighting. In doing so, he helped eliminate the one great remaining advantage of Edison's DC system. Edison had nothing against Tesla for selling his induction motor to Westinghouse. 
He believed the motor doomed to failure. Tesla is the poet of science, Edison declared, a maker of magnificent but utterly impractical inventions. But, quote, Westinghouse has gone crazy, ranted Edison about his newfound nemesis in Pittsburgh, and is flying a kite that will land him in the mud sooner or later. So that brings us up to the spring of 1888 and the outbreak in New York of the new and growing fear we mentioned last week, death by wire. In April 1888, 15-year-old Moses, or Meyer, Strafer, was electrocuted to death by a broken wire. A month later, a brush electric company worker was killed when he failed to wear his heavy leather safety gloves when removing some old wires. And there were others, a lineman in Buffalo, four others in New York City, and a Manhattan fruit merchant who was killed when the display he was using touched an overhead line. The success of Edison's foray into electricity and his Pearl Street generating plant had encouraged others to enter the market, even though many had no prior experience with electricity. New lines were being strung in New York every week, faster than they could be safely installed or inspected. Some installations were crude patch jobs, with poorly insulated wires snaking around existing telegraph and telephone lines, as was the issue in Strafer's death. A tangle of wires literally leaking electricity. The New York papers began to feature a recurring story, the electrocution death of an unsuspecting victim. The articles had appropriately sensational headlines like The Wire's Fatal Grasp and Again a Corpse in the Wires. All caps, naturally. On Tuesday, June 5th, 1888, as Tesla was packing up and getting ready to head to Pittsburgh, a strongly worded letter to the editor titled Death in the Wires appeared in the New York Evening Post, blaming the string of electrical deaths on the use of alternating current. The letter began, The death of the poor boy Strafer, who touched a straggling telegraph wire on East Broadway on April 15th, and who was instantly killed, is closely followed by the death of Mr. Witt in front of 200 Bowery, and of William Murray at 616 Broadway on May 11, and any day may add new victims to the list. The alternating current can be described by no adjective less forceful than damnable, the author railed. The only excuse for the use of the fatal alternating current is that it saves the company operating it from spending a larger sum of money for the heavier copper wires which are required by the safe incandescent systems. That is, the public must submit to constant danger from sudden death, in order that a corporation may pay a little larger dividend. In light of these deaths, many had argued that the wires ought to be run underground, but the letter writer wouldn't have that either. Placing AC wires underground would be, quote, as dangerous as burning candles in a gunpowder factory. The letter concluded with a list of recommendations, including that arc light systems be required to carry a host of new safety features. The post letter caused a sensation vaulting the author to notoriety in the debate over electrical safety. So, who was he? Well, his name was Harold P. Brown, a self-styled electrical engineer, though he had no formal training or schooling. He worked as a salesman, an electrical consultant, as a small-time electrical inventor, who couldn't get patents for anything he invented, a tinkerer, a shyster, and a sycophant. Whatever else you take away from the War of the Currents, by the time this is all over, you probably won't like Harold P. Brown very much. The electrical industry was still in its infancy, so it was easy for ambitious young men like Brown 
to promote themselves as experts in the field. All you needed was a business card that declared you an electrical engineer, a new buzzword in the industry that really didn't mean anything in this era, and which certainly didn't have the formal training requirement or accreditation that there is today. Brown jumped with both feet into the electrical industry, despite a complete lack of prior experience in the field. He got a job with the Western Electric Company in Chicago, which sold devices powered by the Edison DC system. Brown was put in charge of promoting one of Edison's less celebrated inventions, the electric pen, an early stenciling device. But Brown, demonstrating, not for the last time, his inflated sense of himself and his importance, took it upon himself to write Edison in December of 1879 and claimed to, quote, have personally sold most of the electric pens that have been disposed of west of New York and to be therefore better positioned on the subject of the duplicating business than anyone else. There's no record of Edison replying, but that hardly stopped Brown. He spent several more years with Western Electric and then with the Brush Electric Company. He would characterize his role as electrical expert, but much of his time was spent as a salesman for arc lighting systems around Chicago. Striking out on his own at one point, he spent four fruitless years trying to get patents for several safety improvements to arc lighting systems. Then, rechristening himself with the essentially meaningless title of electrical engineer, Brown set up shop in New York's financial district, where he spent his time modifying DC arc lamp dynamos so that they were somewhat less likely to fatally electrocute an unsuspecting operator. It's unclear what prompted Brown's angry letter to the editor in June of 1888. He had no apparent ties at this stage to the Edison camp, nor any direct personal or professional vendetta against Westinghouse or his team, including Tesla. But given that Brown's entire career had been built on selling and servicing direct current systems, and since he'd previously tried and failed at least once to ingratiate himself to Edison with his expertise, perhaps it was simply that Brown saw an opportunity. If he could stake a claim for himself in the growing rivalry between DC and AC, perhaps he could get noticed and make a name for himself. So, he wrote his letter, and minced no words in demonizing alternating current. He urged that, quote, no alternating current with a higher electromotive force than 300 volts be used in order to prevent the wholesale risk of human life. There was no mention, of course, that such limitations robbed AC of its primary advantage, that it could be transmitted great distances specifically by relying on the high pressure of 1,000 volts or more. Operating at 300 volts would require three times more copper wire to carry, effectively pricing AC out of the market. Nor was there mention that Brown's recommendations for new safety measures for arc lights just happened to be the very ones Brown was in the business of selling. And there was certainly no mention that the Evening Post, where the letter ran, just happened to be owned by longtime Edison investor, and soon to be president of the Edison companies, Mr. Henry Villard. And it worked. The Post's letter put the previously anonymous electrician at the center of the growing public debate over electrical safety. On the back of his sudden notoriety, mere days after his letter appeared in the newspaper, Brown was invited to testify before the New York Board of Electrical Control a newly formed body in charge of regulating the city's unruly electrical business. Brown submitted a written critique of alternating current that was more measured than his article, 
even stating at one point that no electrical system was safer than another. And, indeed, there was no scientific evidence that AC was inherently more dangerous than DC. Evidence from dozens of accidental electrical deaths suggested that either current could kill under the right circumstances. Higher voltages certainly posed a greater threat to life and limb, but DC-powered arc light systems had been using 3,000 volts for years without a word of protest from Edison or anyone else. The Westinghouse AC system used at most 2,000 volts, and that was confined to street lines. Alternating current going into homes and offices was stepped down to as little as 50 volts, whereas Edison's DC system ran a 110-volt DC line right into the home. But when Brown spoke before the board, he went right back to breathing fire. He insisted that his letter be read verbatim into the record. He specifically blamed high-voltage AC for the rash of fatal electrocutions in the city. He proposed his self-serving arc light standards and the 300-volt limit on alternating current, all under the guise of protecting the public. His proposals were published in the minutes of the meeting and sent for comment to the various electric companies and electricians, including George Westinghouse. The board invited the affected parties to attend the following month's meeting and debate the matter. As you can imagine, that meeting was a gong show. DC partisans from the various power companies lauded Brown's proposals, declaring that public safety was at stake. The AC forces made impassioned arguments for the safety of their standard and denounced Brown as a stooge for the DC industry. The thin-skinned Brown took the accurate criticisms personally, complaining that the meeting made him, quote, the subject of the most violent personal abuse, and that his opponents had done all they could to publicly blast my reputation and stamp me as an ignorant imposter in electrical engineering. Brown saw only one way to defend himself. I must show from their own current and its effects upon life as compared with continuous currents that my statements are true, wrote Brown. Words are of no avail against such accusations as theirs. And it was at this point that, once again, out of the blue, Brown reached out to Edison. He proposed a series of experiments to compare the relative dangers of AC and DC in a way that could be easily understood by the public and hoped that Edison, who had just opened a brand new expanded laboratory in West Orange, New Jersey, might loan him the electrical instruments necessary. Edison did him one better, inviting Brown to conduct his experiments at the new Edison labs with access to any and all equipment he might need. From this point, Edison was to become Brown's accomplice and co-conspirator in all he would do in trying to discredit alternating current. That Edison agreed to team up with the unscrupulous Brown shows just how worried the inventor had become over the growth of alternating current in the marketplace. His claims about the dangers of alternating current were based on fear and hyperbole. Perhaps, Edison reasoned, Brown's experiments might demonstrate something more tangible to support his claims. At the same time, Edison, no dummy, sensed something in Brown's character that gave him pause. From the first, Edison kept the man at arm's length, assigning his chief electrician and future MIT and Harvard professor Arthur E. Kennelly, as well as our old friend Charles Batchelor, to assist Brown in his experiments. Now all they needed were some test subjects. 
Next time, we'll continue our look at the early days of the War of the Currents, as Brown undertakes a series of increasingly gruesome animal experiments to prove the lethality of alternating current. And all the while, Edison will be working behind the scenes to ensure that a new scientific method of capital punishment would tar the Westinghouse name with the murderous potential of alternating current. Thanks for listening to Tesla The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it too, or share a link on your social media. If you could please take a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you're subscribed to the show and leave us a rating and review, it would be a huge help. Ratings are great, and thank you to all of you who have taken the time to leave one. But reviews are where people get a chance to hear from you, in your own words, what you think of the show. Those reviews, even if they're one word like great or fantastic, or something sweet and to the point like doesn't make my ears bleed, help entice people to give the show a chance. Hopefully, like you, they'll like what they hear. Thanks for your help. Past episodes, as well as show notes, can be found on our website, www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page. And you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at Our Man Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.